0: How does this whole people, planet, profit thing work in real life? And how does it fit into the world of investment banking, especially with the pressures you face professionally? Welcome to this episode. I am Ntombini Marengani, Senior Manager at the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. In this episode, we'll be unpacking climate and environmental change, and hopefully get to the bottom of how transformational and innovative thinking can shift the way we engage with this. The first climate change protest was held in 1917. ABC News presents Earth Day, an SOS for Survival. Here in New York is Frank Reynolds. Good evening. On this Earth Day, millions of Americans in the communities which dot this map have taken the first step to survival. That's a long time ago. And although this has been a contentious issue, the penny finally seems to be dropping on a larger scale. We simply can't go on as we have before. The rather chilling announcement at the recent COP27 by the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez that, quote, humanity is on a highway to climate hell, unquote, rings in our ears. And changing weather patterns and severe weather events are hopefully making us more honest.
1: The UN children's agency UNICEF says Somalia could suffer rates of infant death unseen for half a century as warnings of a looming famine intensify. The number of people now being affected by the worst drought in 40 years has more than doubled. A humanitarian challenge is emerging in Nigeria as the country experiences its worst floods in a decade. There are fears
0: torrential rains could trigger another bout of floods in KwaZulu-Natal. Just last month, deadly floods claimed over 400 lives. Several people had to be evacuated and many more have been displaced as a result. KZN disaster management teams are on high alert as the situation remains vulnerable Volatile. The truth is, we no longer have the luxury of doing business as usual. Joining me now to discuss this further is Gina Zervogo. Gina is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town and is an expert in climate change vulnerability and adaptation, urban governance, Southern African development, and participatory research. Gina also works with the African Climate and Development Initiative at UCT. Welcome, Gina. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you help us to understand the difference between climate adaptation and climate
1: resilience? Great. And I think I'll also bring climate mitigation in there because I think these terms can be confusing to people who are not working in the field. So essentially, climate mitigation is when we talk about addressing uh, the cause of the problem. So greenhouse gas emissions, and we talk about mitigating emissions. So that's reducing the problem. And then climate adaptation is adapting to the climate impacts that we are feeling. And so climate resilience really brings these all together to think about what does it mean to be more resilient um, in the climate context? And just to say that resilience is an interesting word and can mean different things to different people, so... For some people, it means the ability to bounce back to where you were before a shock event. For others, it's about thriving, about being stronger, about finding more sustainable ways to move forward. And there are many different um theoretical backgrounds on resilience in the infrastructure field. We've heard about resilience. We've heard about individual resilience from a psychological perspective. And more and more, we look at social ecological resilience when we look at the system as a whole and its ability to manage shocks and stresses.
0: And where would you say that climate justice fits in all of that? And what does it mean to your understanding?
1: Climate justice is something that I am particularly interested in. I feel that in Southern Africa, what we see is a lot of decisions are made about what the best options in a city might be for example and where should the roads go or how do we think about infrastructure or think about heat in the city and the decision makers tend to be those who have more power who are thinking about issues from a finance point of view what makes um, economic sense etc and unfortunately there are many people living in our cities who get marginalized and whose needs are not adequately considered. And so when we think about climate justice and we think about who has emitted greenhouse gases, where does the problem come from? And we think of who is bearing the brunt of it. It's often those who are most vulnerable and exposed and often have least resources and least voice. So for me, taking a climate justice lens means looking at that, considering it and making an explicit effort to try and consider these diverse needs. Because one of the things we've got to realise is if we don't meet the needs of the poor, we actually are undermining the resilience of the whole system. And so I think it's wealthy households and wealthy individuals and companies that are starting to realise that they need to actually look after the whole system and not just themselves.
0: I think that's really powerful what you just said, because we often think about blanket approaches. We all need to be more mindful of recycling. We all need to be more mindful of fossil fuel usage, whether that's in a home environment as an energy source or it's SCOM um, on a on a industrial scale. We often don't think about what it means to ask poor materially poor households to use renewable energy sources and to change their basic spending patterns, um, and unfortunately, being more climate conscious sometimes does come at a price that these vulnerable households can ill afford.
1: Um, so that's a really great point. Thank you, Ntombini. And I think what's interesting for me is that during the drought, we saw that. So in Cape Town, for example, um, you know, many people said, oh, but the drought didn't really affect poor households that much. Yet, when you see the increase in tariffs for water during the drought, those households with quite limited budgets then had to spend more on water. And so that really comes at a cost to those households. Equally, there would be households with 10 people living in them, for example, there might be four, six in the house and another um, bunch of people in a backyard shack. And so that one water point means that all of those people are using that one water point. And so then that. Um, cost of water becomes much more expensive because they 're going beyond the basic allowance and they 're starting to pay more per unit of water and I think sometimes these nuances are not well understood, and we 've got to start understanding them to make sure that people in our city are able to uh, manage these increasing stresses and Something like a drought really does have increasing stress on poorer households many people 's livelihoods got impacted by that if they couldn 't run their small businesses as did many large sector companies where they also had higher water costs. And so they also had to sometimes cut jobs and that impacted on many poor households. So there are many um, impacts from some of these events that we only start to understand as these events unfold.
0: We've just concluded COP27 on African soil and the South African government has entered into an ambitious Just Energy Transition Partnership Investment Plan, or JET-IP, valued at 8 0.5 billion US dollars. How do such big commitments impact the work of elevating the climate change agenda?
1: It is important that there's money flowing towards this. And one of the big agreements at COP was around something we call loss and damage and actually putting money towards um, compensating countries and ensuring that they can address these issues. So as we start to see more of this climate change related money, we start to see more attention in this space. We start to see more players in the space. What I would argue is that there are many people who've been involved in these issues for a long time who understand the complexities. We have many new players who are trying to use this as a business opportunity. So I do think we need to carefully look at what's happening. However, I do think it's really important. There are many things that need to be done both on the adaptation and mitigation front. So in terms of mitigation, we need to look at uh, cleaner energy. We need to think of more energy-efficient ways of doing things. We need resources to ensure that this happens. What we're also seeing in South Africa is um, something called the just transition, moving away from coal-fired plants, dirty energy towards cleaner options. And what South Africa is really trying to do very consciously is ensure that many of those livelihoods are not lost, that this transition is just and fair. And myself, working strongly in the adaptation space, I'm very excited to see that there's been a big focus on thinking about what this also means for adaptation. What does it mean for us to transition towards more just adaptation, meeting the basic development needs as well as climate impacts? And I think that's one of the lessons I've learned over the years. If one can enter into a conversation and find mutual ground where people really have something that they want to address, whether it's housing delivery, basic service delivery, whether it's more efficient systems, and you find that starting point and then look at the climate component. And also to access that funding at every, at every
0: rung of the economic ladder, not just at an industrial scale, but also at a community scale where small businesses live and breathe. What do we need to consider when we think about the private sector and climate adaptation on the continent?
1: So I think this is important because the private sector really has an important role to play. And I was at an interesting talk recently where somebody quite senior from Arup was speaking. Uh, They're a big engineering consultancy. And she was saying that actually, if you look at the money spent on climate finance, it's quite limited compared to what is being spent in African cities, given the growth rate. We're seeing African cities grow at a very fast rate. And so a lot of infrastructure is being built. A lot of um, people are moving into these areas, a lot of new economic opportunities. And so actually the private sector that is supporting that, if they are thinking in a more climate resilient manner, that is going to go a long way, both towards reducing emissions and ensuring that the built environment that we are developing is well adapted to climate risks. But to do that, we need to understand what the climate risks are. We need to engage with the climate science sector, and it's a quite tricky challenge to make sure that the climate science is accessible and relevant to decision makers. So we talk about climate services as a growing area where there are ways that these products can be made more accessible. And I think the private sector has to carefully integrate that in their planning, um, both in terms of thinking long term, but then also in the infrastructure and making sure it is robust and well adapted to climate change. The other thing I think the private sector um, is looking at is around water resources in cities. So I've been involved in some work with the World Resources Institute, who's trying to help actors across Africa think about what it means to have water-resilient cities. And we know that local governments are a really important player when it comes to water, but the private sector is as well. And in many cities, there are opportunities for ensuring that water is more accessible, affordable, and available. But if we do it in a collaborative way with the private sector and local government and communities, I believe we can find more sustainable options than just allowing the private sector to go off on their own. So there do need to be incentives. And I think different cities need to work out what works for them.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about climate services?
1: So essentially, I've been working with climate scientists for a while. And one of the things that climate scientists do is they look at uh, climate change scenarios, future projections about what we might expect the rainfall or the temperatures to be in a certain area. And these downscaled models, because we have these GCMs, which are global climate models, are at quite a large scale. And we want to be able to have more locally relevant um, information. So we need to downscale them to get them to um, a scale that makes sense. But taking a climate change projection of what temperature will be in 30 years' time is quite hard for a decision maker to know how to use and so it means that climate scientists need to work quite closely and quite carefully with decision makers in various fields to understand what decisions they're making, what information is relevant to them, what products they could use. And it needs to be a collaborative iterative cycle to produce um, information that actually can be integrated into decisions. And I think we've made a lot of progress recently um, where there are a lot of decisions that are now considering Um, future rainfall, sea level rise, changing temperatures, changing winds, and what that means for specific decisions in a specific context.
0: What opportunities are there for the private sector to apply its expertise to the sustainability
1: challenge? One of the things that I feel is the private sector is pretty agile. It's very responsive. And um, I work quite a lot with local government and sometimes it's hard for local government to change. And so During the Cape Town drought, what we saw was incredible innovation from the private sector. And I think we need to be trialing and experimenting. And the private sector is really good at doing that. So I think they have the potential to be leaders there. The other thing I think we really need to focus on is partnerships. And historically, for example, water, the city government might have been able to provide water and we could have turned on our taps we know that that's no longer the way it works. We need to understand the system as a whole. We need to understand the different players in the system. We need to understand the ecological elements of the system. And that requires partnership, bringing different actors together to understand their needs, to understand their skills, their contributions, and where we can find common ground. Because where we can find common ground, we can work together. And if the private sector can find areas where they can actually put in some resources, skills, and help build a more sustainable environment, that's to the benefit of the private sector and to the environment and broader society. So what are those entry points and how can we do that? And there needs to be a lot more focus on that, I think, um, because that's where some of the future innovation lies.
0: With floods in Nigeria and closer to home in Durban, as we heard earlier in the episode, is there space for the private sector to lend its expertise and specialist knowledge to developing innovative responses?
1: I think floods are quite a dramatic event and we've really seen the impact of these across our continent. So it is something we need to take seriously. And the private sector has a really important role to play. We saw in Durban, the private sector was significantly impacted. A lot of Chains of businesses were interrupted, services were interrupted. And there was a really lovely case study in Durban where a group of diverse actors had been working together over the past few years the private sector, the public sector, NGOs, and low income residents living on the banks of rivers that had worked hard in a number of ways. Importantly, they'd really considered carefully the ecological infrastructure that we talk about. So what is happening in the ecosystem? How do we remove alien vegetation? How do we ensure that there are buffer zones that can absorb some of the flood impact? And so if the business sector is thinking about this, they can then ensure that their businesses are less impacted. Um, And so... It's really through understanding what some of these opportunities might be to collaborate that we can reduce these extreme impacts.
0: South Africa stands out on the continent due to the size of its economy and its infrastructure. How can those together with private capital be leverage points for social innovation?
1: So for me, social innovation is a really exciting opportunity, and we're seeing a lot of positive impacts from social innovation that really think about the social good, but draw on principles of design thinking, of systems thinking, of collaboration, partnerships, and we need private capital to support this. We know that companies are looking at ESG more these days, the Environmental Social Governance Indicators. And so they're trying to think about opportunities where they might have an impact. So I think it's important that they are funding social innovation that they really believe in, but also they will reap the benefits and it might not be a direct benefit. So how can we understand some of these cycles? And I think the other thing that's really important is that the private sector shares lessons. You know, the economy is massive. The youth bulge is massive. We need to be working with youth, social media, in ways that really share good stories, good lessons, um, and the private sector can support this. I've seen some amazing documentaries, photojournalism, arts, and we need to invest in the arts that really feed back into this area because I think it will pay off.
0: I think you raised some really interesting examples there. So social innovation is not just one thing. And what's great about um, the expertise and reach of private capital is that there's so many opportunities to be entrepreneurial to be experimental and to try and come at this um, planetary challenge in some creative ways um lastly what are the critical systemic issues that the private sector such as banks should be getting behind to support
1: climate mitigation adaptation and climate justice so for me the important word in that's question is systemic issues and I think we really need to think about how all these things are connected. So we need to understand how banks and their investments are directly connected to our environment and what happens and the decisions that are made and also this work is directly connected to people and the people who invest and the people who spend. And the reality in Africa is that many of those people who spend are our youth And that youth group is growing and they are the investors of the future and the spenders of the future. And I think what I've seen is really a shift in the awareness of youth around these environmental issues. It's quite inspiring, actually, to look across the continent and see some of the work that our youth are doing to bring attention to these climate issues. And so we need to make sure that the private sector is thinking about that. You need to be sending a message that inspires the youth, that attracts the youth, that makes sure the youth are not going to be your enemy, but are actually going to support the work that is happening. And so I think investing in this younger generation is important and spending time to listen to them, to really understand what's important to them is going to be critical. Absolutely. This is their future.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Gina. Really appreciated your insights. It was great to be on. Thank you. What struck you about this conversation? For me, it's recognizing that every part of society, from individuals and households to government to private sector, all have a role to play in creating a more sustainable and equitable future. Trying to shift blame or responsibility is about as useful as an umbrella in the Cape Town winter. So what are some of the ideas that come up for you in your work? How could innovative thinking be implemented in your particular space? What would this conversation look like with your clients? In what ways can Investec incorporate climate mitigation into its business model? Thank you for listening to this episode on climate and environment. We trust you found it helpful. You'll find other useful information on the topic as part of the Investec pre-learning
1: resources. Talk soon.